That was impressive. All right. Since y'all were so good and you found found seats pretty quick, that was that was really. I think that was. I think we're getting better at this thing. Y'all did good. Um, and since you did, we're going to talk about something fun that I know y'all want to talk about um, uh, during church. So we're going <laughs> to we're going to talk about taxes. Y'all like paying taxes? Woo-hoo. Somebody said, "Who's clapping?" Wow, not what I expected. Um, I'm glad I'm not the only one that's sarcastic. So that's good. It's good. Everybody loves taxes. Everybody loves paying taxes, right? Um, So I thought about this, and, you know, I don't even remember who I was talking to here a while back. um, And I I had this realization, like, uh, when you get paid, you pay income tax. And whenever you buy a piece of property, you pay sales tax. And then you pay personal property tax on it every year. So you get taxed three times on the same thing. And my mind was blown whenever I started thinking about that. And now y'all are mad about stuff. Um, And that wasn't my goal. But I did want to talk about taxes because that's what the Bible talks about today. Um, Actually, this passage... This passage is is fun, and I was going to be more sarcastic to you. Actually, in my notes, I, I have this line, um, and I was going to say something to this effect, but now you all know it's coming, so it's not going to have the same effect. Um, I was going to make a comment about how you guys just, you, you know, you have all these options for de- deductions whenever you go to pay taxes, and you guys are all just like, no, I don't want those deductions. I want to pay more, um, right? So please stop giving me all the write-offs, but you all beat me to it. So um, we'll just move past that. Um, everybody, everybody loves taxes. I, I don't like paying taxes. I, I, I know. I understand why I do. Um, I, I get it. I get the point. And I'm really not here just to get everybody all riled up about having to pay tax. That's not my intention. But the text today talks about taxes. And this passage has been one that some have abused in the past to say, well, no, I shouldn't have to pay taxes. I shouldn't have to pay taxes to the state. That's not the point. That is not the point of this passage at all. And if you thought that was the point, you have completely missed the boat. Instead, Jesus, like he usually is, is teaching on something much bigger. Um, during our, uh, our devotional time with my family, I, I know I've shared this with you all before, but we'll read a passage and I'll, I'll say, so um, was Jesus talking about this thing that he said or was he talking about something bigger? And of course, Jesus was talking about something bigger. Um, almost always, Jesus has his view on something bigger. And in today's text, it's going to be the same thing. If you want to know where we're going to be, Matthew chapter 17. Um, we're just continuing on there. We're going to start in verse 22 today. So if you have a Bible with you, I would invite you to open it. And we're going to talk about how Jesus approaches these particular taxes. And really, though, like I said, I don't think he's talking about taxes. I think taxes are just the, the avenue he uses to get to the bigger point. I think he's talking about something much bigger, and really he's demonstrating who he is for these people. And that's what I want us to see today. Now, we're going to start by showing, um, by looking to see what this shows about who Jesus is. Um, that's how we're going to start. Because I think that this passage is showing us very plainly who Jesus claims to be and some characteristics of who he is. Uh, some traits of Jesus. So I want to start with that. And I want to see who Jesus is. So we're going to do like we always do. And we're going to walk through this passage. And I'm going to show you how, how Jesus is trying to show some very specific traits about his identity. So we're going to walk through it like that. But I don't just want to stop there because we can look and say, okay, now we know who Jesus is. And you could leave and do nothing different. You could. And I think that would be inappropriate. So what I want to do is I want to look and see these three characteristics of who Jesus is, but then I want to use that as a, as a kind of a springboard into what we do as a response. I want us to see not only who Jesus is, but also some things that we have to recognize. And when we recognize these things, I think it will cause us to live differently. Okay, so that's my goal. I want us to see who Jesus is. You all tracking with this? 
See who Jesus is, use that as a springboard then to these things we recognize so that we live different. Sound good? Would you stand with me out of respect for reading God's word? And we'll read Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 through the end of the chapter. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible, and it says, As they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus told them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised up. And they were deeply distressed. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the temple tax approached Peter and said, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he said. When he went into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. What do you think, Simon? From whom do earthly kings collect tariffs and taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Well, from strangers, he said. Then the sons are free, Jesus told him. But so we don't offend them, go to the sea, cast in a fish hook, and take the first fish you catch. When you open its mouth, you'll find a coin. Take it and give it to them for me and you. Thank God for his word. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we, um, we come to you as we open your word, um, as we open this book and we read about what you've said through your servant Matthew and through your son Jesus. Um, Lord, so as we, as we look at this text, as we, we dive into this text, I pray that you would help us to see who Jesus truly is, that we would know who he is, that we might, we might truly recognize his identity and what that means. Um, so, Lord, from there, though, I, I pray that you would cause us to live differently, that we would look at Jesus and that we would look at our identity in Christ and that that would affect the way that we live. Uh, so, Lord, I pray for your help today, because on our own, we are not going to grow and we are not going to learn. So, Lord, I pray that you would come by your spirit, that you would send the Holy Spirit and he would teach us as we open this word. Lord, let us be conformed to your image and to the image of Christ. Um, so, Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus name. Amen. All right, so we're going to look at this, and we're going to see how Jesus demonstrates these three traits, and then we're going to see what that has to do with us and how that affects us. So let's look at who Jesus is teaching that he is, these traits that Jesus is demonstrating. So first, he demonstrates that he has unlimited foresight. He demonstrates his unlimited foresight. Verse 22, it sets the scene for us, and it says, as they were gathering together in Galilee. Okay, now let's just set the, set the stage for where we're at a little bit. The last couple of weeks as we've been walking through this, Jesus has been uh, up on a mountain. Now, if you think back to two weeks ago, Jesus has been up on this mountain, and he had taken along three of his guys. He took along Peter, James, and John, and they go up this mountain, and while they're there, this crazy thing happens that we now call the transfiguration. They go up on this mountain, and Jesus, he is transfigured, he's transformed so that his face starts glowing. Like he is just beaming, literally beaming light from his face, and his clothes turn pure white. And here he is with these three guys. And next thing you know, Moses and Elijah are standing there with him. And Peter, like Peter always does, he speaks, possibly out of turn, and he says, Hey, it's good that we're here. Let me build shelters for all three of you, and this will be great. Next thing you know, there's this cloud that comes down and covers them, and they hear God's voice booming out of this cloud, says, This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Pointing back to Jesus. Pointing, saying, Listen to Jesus. Okay, so they've just been up on this mountain here and seen this incredible scene, and then they come down. And as they come down, everything is good. Peter, James, and John, I just imagine, are on this spiritual high, right? So they come down, and they're just 
all about Jesus right now. And they, they've just seen God's glory in Jesus. And they come down, and the other nine disciples are down there fighting with some scribes. Um, because the, or these other nine disciples were unable to do what God had commissioned them to do. They couldn't cast this demon out of this boy. So, caused a problem. And Jesus comes down and says that the reason they couldn't do it was because of their little faith. That they failed. Now, they come down. Here they are. And today's text, we find that they're gathered back together in Galilee. Now, um, just to, so that you know that this is a real place and these are real events. Like, I think sometimes it's helpful to put a physical location to it. So we've got this map of Galilee. Um, this is the region of Galilee. And hopefully this helps you. Some of you are going to think, well, I really don't care. Well, I think it's helpful sometimes just to see. Here's the Sea of Galilee that's being talked about. Okay, And Capernaum is right here. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Um, but they came down from a mountain. And I told you last week that there are three different possibilities on which mountain this could have been. And really, I don't know that it matters, but it could have been Mount Hermon, which is up here. The reason I don't think it was that one is because that's Gentile territory. Um, they probably wouldn't have come down to find scribes arguing with another nine disciples in Gentile territory. So instead, it could have been this place right down here. This is Mount Tabor. Or it could have been another mountain that's actually right up here called uh, Mount Mora. And I believe it was Mount Mora because still there you are in Jewish territory. You would have come down and you would have found scribes. So they come back and they find that they're standing there arguing. And now they're all gathered together in Galilee. And here in just a moment, we're going to find that they come back to their home base of Capernaum. Okay? So real time, real places, real people doing real things. All right? So that's what we find. And last week we talked about these nine disciples, their little faith, and the way they deal, and the way to deal with that. Um, the way to deal with our little faith. Y'all ever struggle with a little faith? I think we decided last week we had all struggled with our little faith. Um, and if you haven't, well, you will. Um, but yeah, we've all dealt with that. And the solution to that, I told you last week, was discipleship. Growing in Christ's likeness. Growing in Christ's likeness. And I encourage you all to join me this week in praying for God to move in us and around us and through us. And I actually encourage you all to fast with us on, on Friday, like to fast together this Friday. Um, and I was thinking about asking you all, how many of you remember to do that? Um, but then I don't want to call anybody out, so I'm not going to do that. What I will do instead is I'll make a confession. Um, uh, typically throughout the week, I try to schedule meetings over the lunch hour because it's a convenient time. And guess what I did on Friday? I scheduled a meeting over the lunch hour, and I was sitting there eating lunch, and I thought, Jared, you dummy, you were supposed to be fasting today. So I thought, you know what, I will fast tomorrow. I, I will, I'll just push it back a day. You know what happened about, about dinner time that night? I was sitting there eating dinner, and I thought, oh boy, I forgot again. So that's my confession to y'all. I failed. Um, so if you've ever felt like your faith was little, guess what? Mine might be smaller. Um, that's not just to beat up on myself or say it's okay if you screw up, because that's not the point. Um, the point is you will fail at times. Um, I know I certainly did, and I would encourage you, especially with revival meetings coming up, I would ask you to continue to fast and to pray that God would move us in us and through us, and I'm going to do my best to shoot for Friday again. So if you would like to join me in fasting, and I pr- I'm not, I about said I promise. I will do my best to remember this week, so I would invite you to fast and pray as we ask God to move in us and around us and through us. So... That's my failure, and now I've made my confession. So, now they're all back together. They're all back together. They're here, back together with Jesus, who was just transfigured before them. And in verse 22, Jesus says, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised up. Now, 
What we need to remember is that this is likely 6 to 12 months, somewhere in that range, before Jesus is crucified. This is still at least a half a year out from his crucifixion. But Jesus knew exactly what was coming. Jesus knew exactly what was coming his way, and he flat out told his disciples what was going to happen. Now, think about what Peter, James, and John must be thinking at this point. These guys who were just with him up on the mountain and saw God's glory radiating from inside of Jesus, saw it beaming out. And now, these guys who know who he is are hearing Jesus say, yeah, I'm going to be betrayed and killed. Now, if I'm Peter, James, and John, I'm probably thinking something like, who in the world would dare to betray you? But let's go another step. Who in the world would dare to try to kill you? Like, they know who Jesus is. He is God in the flesh, but they seem to know at this point that there is no sense in arguing with Jesus. Because last time Jesus made a prediction of his death, you know what happened? Peter says, oh no, Lord, that's not going to happen. And then Peter's made to look like a fool. Because Jesus says, oh no, you're a hindrance to me. Satan. Calls him Satan. So, I don't think Peter's, Peter's sitting there thinking, well, I don't know if that's right, but he's too scared to say anything again. So he doesn't dare to argue with Jesus. Instead, in verse 22, it concludes with this. Instead of an argument with Jesus, it concludes by saying, and they were deeply distressed. The disciples were deeply distressed. And this word distress, it means that it caused them some kind of mental or emotional pain. Like, and not only were they distressed, not only did they have this mental anguish, it says that they were deeply distressed. Like, this really messed with them. This caused some real problems for, the, for their paradigm here because they're seeing Jesus and they, they assume he's the Messiah. And Peter, James, and John know that he's God in the flesh. So here they are and they're thinking, you're telling me you're going to be betrayed and killed? Now they're dealing with this mental and emotional anguish. Now, that tells us something about these disciples and it tells us something about Jesus. Um, these disciples, apparently they caught part of the vision. Apparently they caught part of it, right? But Jesus saw it perfectly. Uh, D.A. Carson, I think he says it better than I, I can. He says it like this. He says the disciples are beginning to absorb the announcement of Jesus' death, but of his resurrection they have no comprehension. See, these disciples, they're starting to get the idea. They've heard Jesus say multiple times that he's going to die, and this is their teacher. This is their leader. This is their, their hope, they're following him, learning from him, and he says, I'm going to die. And they hear that. Apparently they hear that well, so much that they are deeply distressed, but they seem to miss the end of it. They miss the resurrection. They don't seem to understand that just yet. So they're dealing with this, this deep mental anguish. Now, while they miss the point, while they miss the full picture, Jesus clearly knows what's happening. See, Jesus, his foresight is perfect. He knows what's coming now, the beauty of that is he doesn't pull away from it. He knows it's coming and he allows it to happen anyhow. This is God, right? We just saw his, his glory beaming through. Does he have to go and die? Well, that's a very complicated answer and a deep philosophical one. The answer is yes and no. This is God we're talking about. And he knows exactly what's coming. So Jesus demonstrates his unlimited foresight. Well, then Jesus demonstrates his divine sonship. Here are these disciples, distressed and all. They're getting back to Capernaum, uh, right? This hub of their Galilean ministry. It's kind of like their home base that they come back to time and time again. And then in verse 24, it says, When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the temple tax approached Peter and said, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Okay, I'll, I love this. And there's a few things worth noting here. First, uh, they don't confront Jesus with this question, do they? They confront Peter. Uh, they confront Peter. Now, even the way this is phrased, I mean, I know it's asked as a question, but isn't it really phrased kind of like an accusation? 
doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Like, isn't he going to pay this? Now, I do think this is something to note, because when attacks come in the church, um, I believe the enemy works, looks for weak links. Or even whenever the enemy comes to attack your life. I don't think he's going to attack you where you're strong. That would be silly. He's going to attack the weak areas, right? Of course. Why didn't, why didn't the enemy come and attack Jesus directly? Well, I think it's pretty clear. The enemy's tried to attack Jesus directly, and he failed miserably. Jesus refuted him every time. So instead, okay, here's this other guy. Here's this Peter guy who is, oh, he acts kind of, kind of rash every once in a while, and he's pretty quick to speak, and he can be a little bit hot-headed and just very impulsive. I like to call him impulsive Peter. Um, so, hey, you know what? Let's go after this guy who has these clear flaws. Not Jesus, because Jesus has already been proven too strong. So instead, he's going to attack the weak area. Um, I believe all, all believers, all Christians need accountability. All of them. Um, from top to bottom, and I don't know how you want to say top or bottom. I don't know how you want to put people on that paradigm there. I, I, and I really don't care. I don't care where you think you are. I think all believers whether you've been a Christian for five minutes or 50 years, I think you need accountability. All believers do because we all have weak areas. But in the church, I think we especially need to look for those new believers who need their faith to be nurtured. We need to encourage them to grow up. We need to encourage them, walk alongside them, help them watch their lives because it's really easy for the enemy to gain a foothold there where, we, where faith is weak. So we need to be aware of that. So that's one thing that we need to note is that it doesn't come directly at Jesus. The second thing we need to note is this temple tax, right? So he asked specifically about the temple tax. Now, what in the world is this? And really, it has its roots all the way back with Moses. If you read Exodus 30, God, through Moses, demands that there's this census taken. And every man who was 20 years old or older has to pay this tax to the temple. And the money was to be used at the tent of meeting, at the tabernacle, for the service of the tent of meeting in the tabernacle. So there's, it's got its roots all the way back. And this tax later became known as the temple tax. Okay? And it went on even to the time the temple was built. And this was for the ongoing service at the temple. So while at this point, because the Jewish people don't have their own nation, um, they are actually under Roman authority. So while it's not legally required by the state, it was an expectation of all Jewish men to pay for the service at the temple. So it was more of an expectation than a law. So here is this temple tax that all Jewish men were expected to pay. Whether they had to legally or not, they were expected to do it. So let's recognize that. But the third thing I want you to notice is um, it would have been really easy for Peter to do exactly what he did and assume that Jesus was going to pay, right? It would have been easy for him to make that assumption. Jesus was a Jewish man raised by Jewish parents in Jewish territory, and he was the Jewish Messiah. So Peter hears this question, like, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? And he says, well, yeah. Yeah, of course he is. Of course he's going to pay it. So, Jesus, surely he's going to pay the temple tax, right? But notice Peter doesn't ever go to consult with Jesus about this question. He just says, yeah, sure he's, sure he's going to pay it. All right, yeah, he'll pay it. So, I love this next part, because then Peter goes to the house where Jesus is meeting up with his guys, um, and Jesus sees Peter coming. Um, he sees Peter coming. Before Peter can say a word... It actually says that, that, that Jesus spoke to Peter before Peter could say anything. Like, before Peter could get a word out, Jesus speaks to him. And listen to the question he asks. He says, what do you think, Simon? From whom do earthly kings collect tariffs and taxes? <laughs> from their sons or from strangers? All right. Peter, Peter has just had this conversation with these collectors about a tax at the temple. And now he walks up, Jesus uh, seemingly unknowing what's going on with Peter and these collectors... And Jesus says, 
hey, Peter, I got a question for you. <laughs> Guess what? It's about taxes. <laughs> I just imagine Peter's eyes getting about this big, like watermelons on his head, and just thinking, oh, boy, this is not going to look good on me. Uh, this is not going to be good. Um, but the question really isn't that difficult, is it? Like, Peter knew the answer to the question. It's, since I already used watermelons, let's do it again. It's like you're playing baseball and you see just a watermelon pitch coming and you're just sitting there waiting. Like, I know the answer to this one. You can't miss it. I played basketball yesterday. It's like a rim's this big around thinking, I can make that shot. I'm not a very good shooter, but even I can make that one. All right? So it's kind of like that. And you're thinking, all right, I got this. I know this. And Peter knows the answer. And he says, of course, you collect those taxes from strangers. Of course, they collect taxes from those strangers, not from sons. But, of course, Jesus, like he usually does, he has an agenda, right? He's, he's doing something here. So in the last part of verse 26, he says, then the sons are free. The sons are free. Now, let's think about the point that Jesus is making and to whom he's making it, all right? What Jesus is saying is that he is the divine son of God, which is something that Peter should have known, right? He's been up on the mountain. He just heard God declare that very thing from the cloud. And now they come down, and Jesus says, by the way, um, they don't collect it from the sons, they collect it from strangers. <laughs> Which means that Jesus was exempt from this tax, right? That's what that would have meant. Let's think about this parable, right? Who's being compared to the earthly kings? That would have been God the Father. And who's being compared to the son who is not obligated to pay this tax? Well, it would have been Jesus. Which means Jesus is not obligated to pay. And Peter knew exactly who he was as the divine son of God, remembering the transfiguration and God's voice. The problem was that Peter just told those who collect the tax that Jesus was going to pay it. Okay, now Peter's got a problem, right? Uh, maybe impatient Peter needs to become problematic Peter. Um, but here's Peter, and he knows that there's a problem. Okay, and we're going to get to that problem in just a minute. But I don't want to miss the main point. As Jesus is making this declaration, what he's telling them is he, very clearly that he is the divine son of God, and he is declaring his superiority to these religious rules and regulations. He's saying, you know I'm the son of God, and therefore I am not subject to these rules. He's higher than these rules. So Jesus demonstrates his unlimited foresight and his divine sonship, but then he demonstrates his selfless mindset. He demonstrates his selfless mindset. See, so, Jace, so Jesus basically just said that he's the divine son of God, therefore he's not subject to this tax. However, verse 27, he says, But so we don't offend them. Go to the sea, cast in a fish hook, and take the first fish you catch. When you open its mouth, you'll find a coin. Take it and give it to them for me and you. Now let's unpack this statement because there's a lot there. There's a lot there. Now, Who's doing the offending so that we don't offend them? Jesus doesn't say so that I don't offend them. He says so that we don't offend them. Because Peter was the one that obligated Jesus here. He says, so Peter, you're offending them as much as I am because I didn't have to pay this tax. You obligated me to that tax. So he says so that we don't offend them. Okay? You're a part of this now. So I think that's maybe a little jab at Peter there. Um, but then there's the command itself. And really, in, this, in the Greek, there are three command verbs here in, in this command that he gives to Peter. He says, cast, take, and give. So Jesus commands Peter, uh, a fisherman by trade, mind you, um, he commands him to cast in a hook. Now, this is Peter who has caught more fish than you and I could count. Um, this is Peter who would go out in his boat and he would haul in nets full of fish. Uh, okay. Jesus just told this guy who doesn't use hooks to catch fish, he uses nets, to go cast in a hook. He says, okay, you think you have a real good way, of, you think you're so smart. Here, go cast a hook for a minute. Um, so now here he is, 
casting in this hook, try to catch one fish. One fish. So he casts in the hook. He catches the one fish. So he cast, he took, and he was to give to the collectors for both Jesus and himself. Now, um, I, I thought this was interesting. You all might check out on this. If you don't care about history, well, then just check out on me. I thought this was interesting. It probably wouldn't have been terribly uncommon for two men to go together to pay this tax, um, which I, th- I thought this was fascinating. The two drachma coin, which would have been what the temple tax cost, it, it, was, it wasn't minted all that often. So a two drachma coin was pretty rare. Instead, a four drachma coin was, coin was minted all, all the time. So those were pretty common. So two men to go together to pay this tax wouldn't have been all that uncommon. So for Jesus to say, go pay for you and me, would have been a more common coin, which I thought was fascinating. Anyway, but think about Peter. Think about Peter here. He was just told to go to the sea, presumably the Sea of Galilee, cast in a hook to try to catch one fish, then take that one fish that had to bite the hook. By the way, it had to bite that hook with a coin in its mouth. I don't know how that works either, but anyway, he says, go and do that, and you have to find the right fish with the coin in its mouth, and not just any coin. It has to be the exact coin needed. All of that has to go right. Um, by the way, does it say that that happens? Did that happen? Because at the end, we never get any, any, any account of it actually taking place. Jesus says that's what's going to happen. That's what you need to go do. He commands that of Peter. But does it actually happen? I would argue it does. Um, even though we don't have the account of it happening, um, what I do know is that Jesus doesn't typically say something's going to happen and then it doesn't happen. Uh, let me say that differently. Jesus never says something's going to happen and then we look around and it never happens. Everything that Jesus says happens. So because Jesus commanded it, I believe it happened. Um, I fully believe it happened. Now, why did Jesus do all this? Why did he command all this? Well, first, I believe he's taking care of Peter. And he's covering Peter's mess. Because Peter obligated Jesus something he wasn't obligated by. Um, so, not only does he cover for that, but then he also makes provision for Peter at the, with the temple tax. But why is he paying this tax at all? Aren't the sons exempt from taxes? Aren't they? Uh, shouldn't he be exempt? Well, I believe this is why the first part of verse 27 is so important. He says, so we don't offend them. See, Jesus' concern here as he pays this tax is not with himself. It is not about him. He says, I'm not concerned about me. Instead, what he's doing is he is he's worried about them and putting obstacles to their belief in the way. See, he's not worried about himself. Jesus, he, doesn't, he knows he doesn't have to submit to all these man-made rules. He's free, like truly and completely free. But he doesn't want to be an obstacle for them. So even those people who are trying to cause problems for Jesus and his disciples, he wants to do his best to use his freedom for their benefit, not as an obstacle that's going to drive them away. And that's going to be important here in just a minute. And in this way, Jesus demonstrates his selfless mindset. He takes care of Peter. He looks out for those who are collecting the temple tax. He's looking out for others, even as he acts here. So Jesus demonstrates who he is through his unlimited foresight, his divine sonship, his selfless mindset. Okay, but what does this have to do with us? What does this have to do with us? And I think there are three concepts that we need to recognize here. Um, The first of these is that as you follow Jesus, you must recognize your limited knowledge. I think we have to recognize our limited knowledge. Jesus knew exactly what was coming, and for him there were no surprises. But the disciples, through their distress, they show that they they were very limited in their ability to know what's coming. They were emotionally pained because of that limited knowledge. So they were looking for things from their their imperfect perspective, right? They couldn't see fully. They didn't understand what was coming. Now, the reason I think that's so so important is because we do this all the time. I think we do this all the time. We look at things with our limited knowledge and we miss the beauty of what is going to come. 
of what can come. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that everything is always going to be rainbows and sunshine. Um, in fact, I've been reading this week parts of the Bible that say, say pretty emphatically that that's just not true. Um, for those of you who know, I, I said I was reading Revelation this morning, and there are parts of that that make it pretty clear that everything is not always rainbows and sunshine. It's not always perfect. Things aren't always easy. But, but Jesus, actually, he says he's going to be betrayed and killed. Just so you know, the betrayal and Jesus' crucifixion was not pretty. It was gruesome. It was hard. There were tears shed. But God was working even in the middle of the ugliness as Jesus was obedient to the Father and submissive to his will. His will. Jesus was work, God was working in that for something beautiful. But here's the thing. You, you can't look at life, you can't look at the future and have perfect knowledge. You can't. I, now, I know, some of y'all think you're pretty smart. And you think you can see what's coming. And maybe to a degree you can. But while you may be pretty smart, you're not that smart. I'm sorry, y'all are smart people. Maybe you're smarter than I think you are. No, you have no idea what's coming. You think you know. And then out of left field, here comes this thing like 2020. Y'all remember that? I had big plans for 2020, and I thought, okay, here's how everything's going to go. And by the way, then there was this pandemic, and everything changed. Yeah, I had no clue what was coming, y'all. No clue. Listen, does that mean that we're just doomed to go through life feeling the distress of uncertainty and confusion? No. That's not what that means. That's not what that means at all. Instead, what, what that means is recognizing our limited knowledge and Jesus' unlimited foresight. It actually frees us up to stop worrying about those things that are unclear. We, we're free to just live life knowing that God is in control of these things. Whenever we know that we have a Savior who conquered everything on our behalf and that He isn't caught off guard, you can live freely. It totally frees you up to stop worrying about the future because the God who loved you enough to give his son for you is in control of those things and he's not caught off guard. How freeing is that? Things may be hard for a while, but I know the end of the story. And I'm with my God for eternity. So you know what? Come what may. Right? We have freedom because we know that he is good and he is not caught off guard. So recognize that. But I'll go one step further because, you know, discipleship is one of the main themes of the book of Matthew. And it's one of the things that we've been talking about a lot lately and we're going to keep talking about. So within the framework of discipleship, how, how, can, how can God use that to help us with our limited, our limited knowledge, our limited foresight? Well, I've been blessed by having men and women around me who have experienced things that I haven't, who have been through things that I haven't, and who have actually been in the same situations that I have been in. But they're on the other side of it. And they've looked at him and said, Jared, here's, here's the thing. Here's what this looks like. And I know God can work through this because here's how he's worked through this in me. So, look, discipleship, get around those people. And they will show you that God can use the ugly, the horrible parts of life and use them for greater good than you can even fathom. Discipleship is incredibly important because of our limited knowledge. So, the first step here, recognize your limited knowledge. Okay, so as you follow Jesus, recognize your limited knowledge and then recognize your privileged position. All right, we live in a culture where privilege is talked about an awful lot. So I use that term very intentionally. Um, Y'all are privileged people. Uh, No ifs, ands, or buts. You all are privileged people. You might be thinking, Jared, you don't know how rough things are. You are a privileged person. Uh, Just by virtue of where you're born, where you live, people around you, um, the fact that you're sitting in this room, you got a shirt on your back. Most of y'all probably have a smartphone in your pocket or in your hand texting somebody right now. I don't know. Any of those are fine. I don't care. Um, 
Anyway, y'all are privileged people. You, I hope you recognize that. And whenever I say that you're privileged people, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty for it. I don't think there's anything wrong with being privileged. In fact, you read about people in the Bible, there's a lot of people in the Bible that were very privileged and they make no apologies for it. You are blessed to look at it that way. There's nothing wrong with being privileged. There is nothing sinful about that at all. Nothing wrong with that. So, good for you. That's all I'll say. Recognize your privileged position. Okay, the temple tax was eventually, um, it eventually went away, 70 AD. The temple was destroyed, and then that money was diverted. So they still paid the tax, but it was diverted to Roman coffers and set up to the temple. Okay, so eventually the temple tax mostly went away. So to simply focus on the temple tax is irrelevant anyway. All right, it doesn't exist anymore. It's not the same thing. So we can move past that. Jesus' point here is, is bigger than that. He's saying that he is the divine son of God. And the reason I say that you need to recognize your privileged position as a believer is because in Christ, you are adopted to sonship. You are adopted as a son or a daughter of the king. You all are privileged if you are Christians. You have a tremendous privilege. And as Christians, we can we can stop worrying about all the rules and regulations because well, we belong to the king. We belong to him. The thoughts of like, oh, am I going to get struck by lightning because I messed up today? That goes away. All right, my, my kids, and I, I didn't tell them I was going to talk about them, but, you know, they're sitting here, so I'm going to do it anyway. They'll forgive me. Will you all forgive me? All right, God, I'm going to talk about you for a minute. Um, I love my kids. I love my kids a lot. Um, I do an awful lot for my kids. Now, my kids are never going to be perfect. I, I acknowledge that. My kids are going to mess up. Molly, you're going to mess up eventually, right? All right, yeah, good, you know that. Um, she's pretty sweet, so she's not going to do it very often, but she's going to mess up every once in a while. And when she messes up, I'm not going to turn my back and say, I don't love you anymore. I'm not going to throw her aside and say, I'm done. No, I'm going to love her. I'm going to love my kids. Look, if you are a Christian, you are a son or a daughter of God. You step out of line, he's not going to zap you with a lightning bolt and say, I'm through with you. That completely misses the point. He's your father. Like, there's a reason whenever we pray, we say, Father. That's the way Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. His love is like that. It's unconditional. He's going to give himself. We can stop worrying about the line. I, I think it was Jade gave us, uh, he's not even here today, so perfect. I'm going to talk about Jade for a minute. Jade gave a communion meditation here a while back, and he talked about the line. You all remember that? Some of you might remember that. He talked about the line and how before he was a Christian, he didn't care where the line was. And he became a Christian, and, and he was still re- relatively new to the Christian faith, and he was so worried about the line so that he didn't step over the line. Look, as sons and daughters of the king, we can just forget the line. Why is it relevant? You're a son or daughter of the king that frees you up to live life. Look, we've been memorizing. We've been memorizing in, in Sunday school, um, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Um, at least we're supposed to be memorizing 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says, uh, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and look, the new has come. Or in C, the new has come. I've got to get it word perfect. Yeah. You're not who you were before. You're something new. You are a son or daughter of the king. We can stop worrying and stop thinking like slaves. Instead, we can start thinking like children. Like children of a God who loves us. Before the foundations of the world, God loved you and gave himself up for you. He knew that you were going to be in him before the foundations of the world. That's what it says. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. This is one of my favorites. Paul writes this to the church in Ephesus. He says, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be, a, to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Before the earth began, God knew you were his son. Just stop worrying about the line. 
Like, we don't have to worry about that. We are free in Christ. If you're in Christ, He chose you before the world existed. All while we go around worrying, like, am I good enough today? Did I do enough today? Am I a good enough believer now? What if I step out of line there? Is this sinful? Because, I mean, I don't want to get zapped. How often do we think that way? We're sons and daughters of the King. Of the King. If you are in Christ, you are a privileged son or daughter. And whenever we realize that, it frees us to be what God wants us to be. But does that mean that we just go around and do whatever we want? Here's where things get a little, a little hairy. Now, all of you, all of you have an answer in your mind, right? And most of you are thinking, no. Some of you might be thinking, yeah, that means we can do whatever we want. Um, and the answer, I believe, is more complicated than most of us want to acknowledge, okay? So as we follow Jesus, you recognize, you recognize your limited knowledge. You recognize your privileged position. But as you follow Jesus, you must recognize your intended purpose. You must recognize your intended purpose. See, here, Jesus doesn't use his privilege, his privilege, as the divine son of God, as a way to get what he wants or to benefit himself. That's not what he does at all, is it? Instead, in verse 27, he says, but so that we don't offend them. I believe Jesus is abundantly clear. He doesn't have to pay the temple tax. He doesn't have to follow these rules and regulations. He doesn't have to. However, to ignore the tax would cause problems for those around him. Would cause problems for them. So even though he doesn't have to, he makes provision for it. So does our privileged position in Christ mean that we can do whatever we want? Well, the answer is yes, we can do whatever we want. But the answer is also no, we cannot do whatever we want. Now, I'm talking about both sides of my mouth, and I'm doing that for a reason. Um, What we want is going to be flawed. That's the problem. Our desires are tainted by sin, by the flesh. Um, I know that what I want is not always what God wants. I know that. And that's because I'm still being perfected. God's still got a lot of work to do in me. And I know he does. Um, however, when we submit to Jesus and we follow him, we, our, our hearts change. Um, I, I, he takes our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. Our desires become his desires. Our wants become his wants. Like our good is whatever brings him the most glory. Everything changes whenever we come to Christ. So can we do whatever we want? Well, yeah, whatever our wants are his wants. Absolutely, we can do whatever we want. That means that we need to do whatever most glorifies the Father. See, although we're privileged, we have to remember that we represent our God. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, it says, Therefore we are ambassadors. We are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Look, what Paul says there, is that you are an ambassador for Christ. You are an official representative for the God that you serve. You are his representative. Do you realize that? Like everything that you do represents your God. Uh, I think about it like this, and this is the last illustration I'm going to give, and then I'll, I'll stop talking because y'all are tired of me now. Um, here it is. Uh, I think about it like this. Right, wrong, or indifferent, y'all judge people based off their kids. Um, whether you mean to or not, you judge people based off their kids. Uh, I, I know. I, I certainly do this. Um, and whether I mean to or I don't mean to it, I judge people based off of their kids, what you see in their kids. You think something about somebody. I, I see the Sheldons right here. I, I see the you three. I think something about your mom and dad whenever I see you guys. Um, it's all good. All good things. Um, love you, Steve. Um, see, it's all because of your kids that I love you. No. Um, <laughs> 
but for real. Um, so uh, you think things about people based off of what you see in their kids. Because you see something of that person in their children, right? You all will think something about me based off of what you see in my kids. And I know that's true. Now, I'm not trying to say that so that it puts a heavy burden on my kids. That's just a fact. Like, you will. You will see those things. You will judge me based off that. Now, whether we mean to or not, that happens. Because we see something of that, of, of the father, of the mother, in their kids. We think they had to come from somewhere, right? So, we will judge based off of what we see with the image bearers. See, my kids have something of me in them. Um, some of them can't deny it. A couple of my kids look just like me. So, I mean, you just can't deny that. Yeah, lucky kids. You see something of me in them, right? So, whenever you see that, you will think something about me. Now, let's apply that to what we're talking about today. We have been created in the image of God. People will think something of our God based off of what they see in us. They will think something of the church based off of what they see in us. As a matter of fact, as I talk to people who are opposed to the church, one of the biggest reasons they don't want to be a part of the church is because of what they see about people in the church. Like, they think something about it because of what they see in the children, right? They do. So what we need to do, the reason I bring all that up, is because people will judge us based off of, or judge our God based off of what they see in us. So we need to recognize our intended purpose, that our purpose is to glorify our God, to make much of Him, to point people back to Him. And how do we do that? Well, we do it by pointing people back to Jesus and the work He has done in us. We point people to Jesus, and that glorifies God. That's our purpose, is to glorify Him. The question then becomes this, as people look at you, will you be a hindrance or will you be a help? Jesus went out of his way to make sure he was not a hindrance. I believe Paul says it this way. He says he became all things to all people. He, he wasn't worried about the line. He was worried about bringing people close to Jesus. Now, am I telling you just go live however you want? No. I'm saying glorify your God and make sure that that is your chief aim. Glorifying God with your life. So what do we do as a result of this passage today? Well, recognize your limited knowledge. Recognize your privileged position. And recognize your intended purpose. And then... What I want to urge you with is be discipled and share the hope that you have in Jesus all to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, God, um, I'm thankful for this, for this word. Um, and the way seeing who Jesus is challenges how I live. Um, God, because I know you want me to be more like Christ. And Lord, I know that you're still working in me. Uh, so God, I just pray that you would continue to do that that you would make me more and more like your son, that I would recognize my intended purpose of glorifying you. Uh, so, Lord, help me to be faithful with that. Um, Lord, I, I, what I want to pray today is two things. One, I want to pray that you would make us all more like Christ, uh, that we would look and we would see that we are not perfect yet, that we do not have the perfect, the perfect foresight like you displayed. But instead, Lord, I pray that we would see our shortcomings, that we would see our inability, and that would drive us to discipleship, and that would drive us to trust in the God who does have perfect foresight. And that we would rely on you in everything we say, everything that we do. Lord, and that we would recognize our privileged positions as your sons and daughters. Lord, that we would see that we're loved, not because of what we do, but because of who you are. So, Lord, remind us of that today. Lord, and then let us, let us follow you faithfully as you intended for us to do. 
Uh, so I want to pray that for us, but I also want to pray for those who don't know this truth. I know that this has been very much aimed at those who believe, but Lord, I believe that there are some who are hearing this today who may not have submitted to you as the king, who may not have been adopted as sons and daughters. So Lord, I pray that you would begin to work in their lives and help them to see that this isn't just something that is, that is held out for a few. Instead, you said, whosoever will may come. Lord, so I, I pray that you would work on those hearts of those who have not, who have not received your grace who have not submitted to your, to your lordship, Lord, and that you would convict them of sin and that they might turn and receive adoption as sons and daughters. Um, so, Lord, that's, that's what I would ask today. Um, so, Lord, just, just work through your word as you, as you always do. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.